right, all right, good morning. Wow, an incredible song set, worship set. That last song especially led us right into the presence of God, didn't it? Wonderful, great job. We are so blessed here at Gateway to have the talent we have and the leadership we have. And not just on stage, but back in the children's area and uh, students everywhere, everywhere. Great VBS, great VBS this, uh, this week. This coming week, we have our VBS at Marmette, our Marmette campus, the fourth of four campuses we're having VBS at, and it uh, starts Wednesday night, 6 o'clock, and it'll go through un- until Sunday evening. And Sunday is the shift of the calendar for Marmette. It's the, it's the reset. So reset at Marmette. Say that with me, the reset at Marmette. I just came up with that. And we're shifting the time to 6 p.m. for Marmette. We've got to do something. We've got to do something different. You know, when we started our Taze Valley campus, which now runs 250 to 300 every week, we started on Sunday evening so that folks from this campus could go over and support it so we could share resources, the team, you know, the staff team could be there and everybody could participate. So that seems to kind of be our model. It's a model of, uh, that's worked for us. It's a model that's worked for us. So that's what we're doing in Marmette. Now, Marmette isn't Taze Valley. It's a different uh, target audience there, but they still need the Lord. They need the Lord. Maybe, uh, well, they all need the Lord. Taze Valley needs the Lord. St. Albans needs the Lord. Marmette needs the Lord. And so next Sunday... We're going to shift to 6 o'clock. We'd love to have you over the next several months drop, make the drive to Marmette. Say, hey, let's go to Marmette right across the street. Of course, I don't think it's open on Sunday, but there's an ice cream parlor. You could do that too. I'm not sure it's open, but give it a try. Uh, I'll have ice cream if you'll come. So we're going to make the shift next Sunday for Marmette, the reset, and we're going to try to do something there in that community to fill that little house up. It's just a little church. We want to fill it up a couple times every Sunday. Who knows? Six months from now, a year from now, we may be filling it up. We may, we may be able to get another team hired in that can help us there, and um, uh, we can move back to Sunday morning. But if it's working, we'll make it work. So good morning, Gateway. We're so glad you're here today. It's the middle of the summer. Middle of summer, and if you're a teacher out there, don't even think about it. I don't smell school in the air at all. That's your neighbors uh, uh, doing something over there. But school is uh, is coming fast, and I know every campus is planning on being in the school system and helping out and being a resource for our schools. So think about that and pray about that. Last week, I was in our Beckley campus. It was great to be down there. Next week, I'm going to take advantage of the opportunity this month to visit our Taze Valley campus. But uh, last week, and it was great in Beckley to see the Pray for One shirts out there. <clears throat> you know, they've, they've filtered all the way down to Beckley. If you don't have yours, you can go online, gatewaychurch.net, to our store, and you can order one right there. We'll deliver it to you. We'll mail it to you, or you can pick it up here next time you're here. So it reminds us that we, are, we have other business to do. Our business is not just to enjoy the summer. We're thinking about another one, praying for one. So get your 
get your mindset there. And we, we're in this series, we started the year this way, and we're keeping it going because, first of all, we're a praying church. We believe in the power of prayer. We don't believe our prayers hit the ceiling and bounce back. We don't believe they just float into the nothingness. We believe in the power of prayer and the power of a, of a God who hears those prayers and responds and responds. The Bible says the prayer of a righteous man availeth much or accomplishes a lot. And secondly, we're doing this here because we're an evangelistic church. We believe that people need to hear the gospel. We believe that without Jesus, people are going to hell. And so we're praying for one because we want our one, we want those in our family, those in our circle of friends, whoever it is for you. Hopefully you have a one. And, And if you don't, you need to understand the mandate of Scripture dictates. It's a mandate. It dictates that you have a heart for the lost. That's what we're to be about. Go and make disciples of all nations. So your one might be a family member, might be a spouse, might be a child, might be a grandchild, might be a sibling, could be a neighbor or a friend at work. Who needs the Lord in your life? Start there. Start there and begin to pray, and you'll be amazed at what can happen when you just seriously, sincerely, fervently pray for a bridge, for a relationship to start. That's what we've been talking about. We, uh, first week of this summer edition, we talked about the woman in Luke 7 who was fervently praying. She kept asking Jesus to come and heal her demon-possessed daughter, and he granted her request because she was so fervent about it. She was so persistent about it. Last week, uh, Luke, uh, Philip preached here, Luke was in Taze Valley, but Philip preached here on the prodigal son. I was in Beckley. We looked at the prodigal son from a different slant. It was a little bit about, uh, you know, we've looked at it from many uh, cases, even in February when we started this series, we used that text. But this time we looked at how deliberate the father was and how he treated his wayward son, what he said and what he didn't say. And that's important too. Sometimes what you don't say is just as important as what you do say. You ever had to bite your tongue or wanted to bite your tongue or wish you'd bitten your tongue? Yeah. When the son came wandering in there and ready to be a servant, the father didn't say, where have you been? Where's the money I gave you? What have you been up to? Why do you stink like pigs? He didn't do any of that. He just welcomed him in. But I fear that some of us would be doing that. Well, today we want to get to our, uh, our third message here, three of four. We're going to talk about continually inviting. And the text is Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. This is uh, the invitation Jesus gave when he was on the earth with us. This is the great invitation, the great invitation. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What a great invitation. Is there anybody here this morning who's maybe on the, my grandfather used to say, half a court low side. You'd ask him how he was, he'd say, I'm about half a court low. Is anybody here tired? 
Is anybody here, you know, I don't know if you're like me, and and I kind of feel bad about this, but try to sympathize with me, but does anybody else do this? Sometimes I'll wake up on Sunday morning, and I'll be like, oh, it's Sunday. I get to take a nap this afternoon. Does anybody else do that? Okay, I'm the only one. All right. I look forward to the nap. I say, oh, wait a minute. I'm doing church first. I want to be with God's people, and that's, uh, that's energy in and energy out. But we're, t- we're a tired nation. You know, America's tired. We're tired. You would think with all the automation and electronic devices and everything that can do everything for us that we'd be a nation with lots of nap time. And we'd just be sleeping in late and going to bed early. You know, like your teenager was sleeping in late and going to bed late. But we're a tired nation. And so when Jesus looked at the people of his century, the first century, he saw the same thing. Back in Matthew 9, we read from Matthew 11, back in Matthew 9, Jesus was out and about as he often was roaming through the people, the crowds, and he looked at a lot of people and they were, they were all wanting you know, to hear something from him or to receive something from him. They wanted to be healed and he did so much of that. He did so much, I'm not even sure... Uh, you know, we even ha- have the foggiest idea of how much he did. But he noticed these people, and he looked at his disciples, and he had them look at the people, and he says, I want you to look at them. They are, they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's what he saw when he looked into the eyes of the people who were gathering around him, the day-to-day first-century people. I wonder today if he were to walk along the the streets of St. Albans or in your neighborhood or in Charleston or you know, at your work or wherever you spend your time, I wonder if he would look deep into your eyes. I'm not talking about a cursory look where it's a, how are you, I'm good, how are you, I'm good, and we just pass each other. I'm talking about a look deep into your soul, deep into your heart, down into your life. And I, 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 I wish we could really do this at times, don't you? I wish we'd take the time for this, but I wonder what he'd say if he looked at us. I wonder if he'd say, man, they're... They're harassed and helpless. Now, part of what he was saying there in Matthew 9 was the people's everyday life was tough. It was tough living in the first century. I was watching the news last night as I drifted off to sleep, and there's, you know, evidently uh, somewhere around here, uh, you know, the people are without power. Uh, anybody been without electricity this, this summer? Any, anybody? Yeah. So the, this, this woman was without power. You know, you may have seen this. She had the hat on. And she was talking, and she said, and, and I'm not making light of it, but, you know, in a sense, we're, we're making light of all of us. But she said, I didn't have the Internet. I, I, didn't have my, I couldn't charge my phone. And she was, she was saying all these things. Well, I would have been saying, you know, my air conditioning was off. My AC was off. Man, you better get the power back on. It, we call these first world problems, don't we? Well, this this first century, they didn't have any of that. And life was hard. Life was hard in the first century. And Jesus in Matthew 11 is lamenting the fact that in the first part, before we get to our part, the invitation, come to me all who are labor and are heavy laden. Before we get to that part, the first part of that chapter, Jesus is, is lamenting the fact that he He's done a lot of cool things, miracles, teaching, lots of stuff in all these cities, but they still didn't believe. 
In fact, in, in chapter 11, verse 24, he said it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. I wonder what he would say to us. All the incredible things we've witnessed and all the incredible things we've read about. We have the Bible. We have the church. We have the Holy Spirit. If he would say, you know, it's going to be easier for Sodom to get in than you. But then he gave this invitation to all who would hear it. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Now, who do you think he was inviting here? The title of our message is continually inviting. Who do you think Jesus was saying, come to me? We get a little bit of insight into it by looking at a couple of the words he uses here in this text. The first word is the, you know, he invites those who labor. Who labor, that's a, that's a reference to those who, who are just tired. You know, this, this Greek word means they're just tired, plain, exhausted from normal life. It, it's just a normal life. It's like my grandmother used to say, you know, she would, she would rest from resting, she was just tired. You know, the older you get, the more tired you get, easier. So that's one group he was talking about. And that hit just about everybody. At some point, you know, we, we don't sleep well. We're having, we're having trouble and anxiety. All these things weigh into us. And we, uh, you know, we have a hard time sleeping. Yesterday, I was in Mercer County, and I was mowing grass, and I got into some yellow jackets in the ground. Has anybody done that yet? Yeah, I got hit about four times, about four times, and last night, I, it was hurting. Uh, it's, it was hurting, and I'm like, I got this poison in my body, it won't let me sleep. And so I didn't really sleep good last night because my, my ankles, and I got one spot right here below my belly button that got hit. Where'd he come from? So, so we're tired. Then I remembered, oh, it's Sunday, I get to take a nap today, maybe. But the second word is the word that we translate heavy laden, heavy laden. P4tisminoi is how you say that. And it refers not just to the plain old exhausted type, but burdens that have been put on you by somebody else. And specifically, this is an indictment of the religious leaders because it, it, it has to do with ceremonial rules and regulations. In other words, these religious leaders were making it so hard for people just to live a normal life. You couldn't turn around, but you were breaking some kind of a, a law or a rule or an Old Testament regulation that really wasn't in the Old Testament, but some rabbi somewhere thought it should have been, and he wrote about it in this thing called the Talmud. And so they lived not only by the Bible, but they lived by this other set of laws that made life so hard. And then some rabbis were harder on the people than others. That's what he said when they're like sheep without a shepherd. And so they had all this burden put on them. And you know, it's hard enough just to do life. But when you have other people draining your energy, when you have other people who have all these high expectations of you, when you have other people who are demanding something from you, it makes life even harder, doesn't it? So, that's who he was inviting. It was really everyone, anyone, but especially ones that everybody else had rejected. Consider this woman we're going to look at next. This woman at the house of a man named Simon. Here's a story of a woman who was uninvited, but she came anyway. 
Now, this story is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we get more details in Luke 7, so we'll use that story. It seems that Jesus had been invited, Jesus was invited, to the house of a man named Simon. He was known as Simon the leper. It's likely that Simon, who was a leper, had been healed of leprosy. The word leprosy in the text can refer to any kind of skin disease. So it may be that he had eczema or he had you know, some other skin problem. But let's just assume it's leprosy because I think it was. And probably somewhere along the way, he had been in the crowds when Jesus was healing. You know, he was a Pharisee, so he probably had a, he probably had a hood on. He didn't want people to see him going to Jesus, but he wanted rid of this leprosy. And so he got that healing touch, and I'm sure Jesus knew exactly who he was. And he was cured of leprosy, but he retained the title, the leper, because he was known as Simon the leper. So probably what happened is Simon the leper, now he's back to himself. He's, he's still got his money because he's a Pharisee. He's one of the elite, one of the wealthy. He's got a nice big home. And now that he's healed of his leprosy, he can have people over. He can have his dinner uh, parties and to, to show off some, he's having this dinner party, and I think to show his Pharisee friends, his buddies, oh, you guys are talking about this miracle worker, this guy, this teacher who's going around and causing a stir. I know him. I know him. I'll get him here. He'll be our guest of honor. And so he invites Jesus to his house, invites all his buddies, and this is like a, this is like a big party, really. It's a show-off party. It's Simon showing off. Now, we know Simon wasn't sincere in this based on what we read a little bit later in the text. We know Simon didn't give a hoot about Jesus. He didn't care about Jesus. He just cared about himself. He was showing off. So he invites Jesus in, in, in this, this first century entertainment, you know. This was, uh, this was uh, uh, better than uh, Housewives of Jerusalem, you know. It was Come in and watch, because here's what people would do. You know, there's this big party, and they would slip into people. The doors were open so that everybody could see Simon's show off. And so it was okay for people to slip into the house, stand in the back, in the shadows, and kind of watch the, the main party, the main uh, guest, eat. And who's the guest of honor? Oh, there he is. That must be him. He's doing the talking. And so it was customary and, and welcome for people to do that. But once you step out of the shadows and into the light, that, that's not your place to do that. You stay back here if you want to and just kind of keep the crowd moving because uh, only if you have a special invitation can you come up and sit at the table and uh, converse with the, with the guests. So what's happening here, <clears throat> this is happening, and uh, Simon's showing off his money and his connection with Jesus, and the Bible says Jesus was at the table, and you know when they sat at the table, they didn't sit at chairs like you might do today or you think, you know, I was uh, in, in Iraq, mostly we, we would, uh, they would spread everything out on the ground, they would spread it on the ground, and then you would either stoop down to get it, or if, if we had been in a home somewhere, you know, you would sit down and you kind of you recline, your feet are on one side, uh, and you're kind of reclining on your elbow, and then you're feeding yourself with your other arm, and then you switch positions. But your feet are over here, and that explains why, you know, this could happen. Some people say, well, how'd she do this if his feet were under the table? Well, that, they didn't sit at tables uh, in these homes. So, the Bible says he was doing that, and then a woman of the city who was a sinner 
when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, understand that Jesus had been invited, but the woman had not been invited. She was one of those who could stand in the shadows, but if they knew she was coming in, they probably wouldn't have let her do that because as you might know already, she was a, a particular woman. She was, the, Luke calls her a woman of the city who was a sinner. So what was she? Anybody know? She was a, she was a hooker. Yeah. That's, that's what the description means. She was a prostitute. Now, can you imagine what it would have been like for this woman? Can you imagine how scared she had to have been? Because everybody knew her. This is not like it's a, a city where you could slip in unnoticed. Everybody knew who she was. Can you imagine the shame and the guilt she carried along with her wherever she went? I don't think when she was a teenager, she sat with her friends and they said, Hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? Oh, I'm going to be a nurse. Oh, I want to be a school teacher. What do you want to be? Oh, I want to be a hooker. No, that's not what she said. That's not what she wanted to do. That's not what any girl wants to do. Not then, not now. But something happened that made her choose this career. What was it? Maybe this woman who came in uninvited to Simon's house grew up without a loving father. Maybe she didn't have a father in her life. She didn't really know the love of a man, a father. So she craved love from men. Or maybe she had an abusive, sexually abusive father or stepfather. Or other, other family member in her life. And as a result of being sexually abused, her mind and her heart were just confused about what real love actually was. Maybe she was forced into this lifestyle because her parents died. Her parents died, and now to put food on the table for her siblings, she had to do something. And so she sold herself into prostitution. Maybe there was an older boyfriend who pressured her into having sex. And when the baby, when she got pregnant and the baby came, he jetted. He was gone. And now she had a baby, but she had no man, and no man would have her. Not now. Whatever it was, she, she lived with this shame. She lived with this, this shame of having this lifestyle, the glaring looks of other women, the abuse from sinful men without the disgrace of having made poor choices in life. And she definitely would never have been invited into anyone's home unless it was a clandestine affair at night for business purposes. It couldn't have been easy for her to come out of the shadows and into the light. It had to be the hardest thing she did. Why did she do it? I think because she was tired. And she was weary. And she was tired of being told 
you're going to hell. I think this was her last best hope. I think she, she needed rest for her soul. And when she got there, she stepped out of the shadows into the light. She did the most magnanimous thing. She, she wept, and then she poured out the most valuable thing to her, the thing she thought had the most value. She didn't think her life had any value, but this had the most value, and she poured it out. Why was this so valuable? This was the tool of her trade. This was expensive stuff. If a woman like her was going to spend money on anything to make money at her business, this is what she'd spend it on <clears throat> because this was the main tool of her trade. So when, when she was available, she would put it on. And so whether she was standing on a street corner or against a building or walking through uh, a crowded street, when a man who was looking smelled her perfume, he would immediately know She's available. Years ago, someone told me that downtown Charleston, I, nobody verified this last service. I don't know if they were pulling my leg, what was going on. I don't know. I've never tried it. I hope none of you can answer me either. But they, you know, there are women of the city in Charleston too. I don't know if you knew that. Anybody not know that? There are women of the city. And uh, someone told me, yeah, if you're driving downtown and if she's uh, available and if she hasn't seen any uh, problems, she'll be carrying a 7-Up. And that's, okay, pull over, uh, you know. But if she's seen policemen in the area and if she knows it's not safe, she'll be uh, carrying a Dr. Pepper. I don't know. I know now when you drive through Charleston, you're going to be looking for, you're going to be looking for women carrying 7-Up and Dr. Pepper. That's what I was told. Uh, I don't know if it's true, uh, but you can test it out if you want. Don't test it out, but you can see if they're carrying it. But that's kind of what this perfume was. It was, hey, I'm available. I'm available. You know what I think it was? I think it was her saying, I don't want this anymore. I don't want this life anymore. It was her last best hope. When she began to perform this act, she lost it. I mean, she lost it. She began to cry uncontrollably. And you imagine just coming into his presence. I don't know what it was. Maybe, maybe he looked up at her. Maybe she saw something in his eyes that said, it's okay. You're all right. You're safe here. You don't have to have any shame. You don't have to carry that guilt around anymore. Maybe that caused her to lose it. And she wept uncontrollably. And when she began to cry and those tears fell on her feet, because she was probably on her knees, the dust from his feet mingled with those tears created kind of a mud and so immediately she, she, she had to conceal that. She didn't want to do that to him. So she took her hair down and she began to wipe off the mud that she had caused on his feet. I mean, it was, it was a big deal. You know, the Old Testament Talmud, not the Old Testament, but the commentary on the Old Testament, known as the Talmud, T-A-L-M-U-D, 
forbid women to take their hair down in public. My dad's mother was an old Church of God lady, and she, I never, hardly ever saw her with her hair down. Every now and then I'd see it down, and it was way down there too. She always wore a dress, never wore jewelry. And uh, once, her, uh, once her husband left her, divorced her, she never remarried. I don't know, anybody else have anybody in their family, any, anybody in their life, a mother like that who always put the hair up? It was a big bun on the head. Yeah, and, you know, that's kind of an old-fashioned thing. <clears throat> I don't think it's, it's a binding thing on women today, even though the Apostle Paul said it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, and if she's going to cover it, Cover it with a hat. That's why women used to wear bonnets to church. First Corinthians 11, he said, use the hair for the covering. And so that's why these women don't cut their hair and they put it up. I don't think it's binding on New Testament women. But my grandmother believed in that. She lived by that. And it would have been a disgrace for my grandmother to walk around with her hair down. And it was for this woman. It was disgrace upon disgrace upon disgrace. Her whole presence there. The fact that she came out of the shadows, the fact that she was in the room, the fact that she stepped out into the light, into the attention of the men standing there, some of whom no doubt had seen her in the shadows, if you're following me. And so they were uncomfortable. They knew who she was. Everybody knew who she was. Simon said, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Yeah, that's one reason I think Simon, he didn't care about Jesus. Now, Luke tells us that Simon said this to himself, which means he either mumbled it or he said it, he, he thought it. But guess who hears your mumblings and your thoughts? Jesus does. And so Jesus looked over at Simon. He said, Simon, I want to tell you a story. I know this bothers you. I know you're not comfortable here, you and your friends, but I want to tell you a story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, Simon, which of them will love him more? The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. <clears throat> now, watch this shift. This, this is an important conversational technique. Jesus used it a lot. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. but She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. You see, Simon, he didn't care about Jesus, did he? Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. What an incredible display of grace upon grace upon grace. Jesus didn't see this woman's presence as an interruption. He didn't see it as, a, uh, as, a, as an intrusion on this nice dinner party. He saw it as a desperate cry for help. I, I think some of you have a one who in some way, if you can look through the facade and through the 
sinful actions, I think you'll see that they're desperate for something. They're not sure where to turn. This woman was genuinely repenting as she poured out her ointment. Why did she do this? Because she knew the invitation of Jesus was for her. Maybe she witnessed one of his incredible life-changing miracles and said, you know what? I'm not sick, but if he could do that to my heart, it would be so good. Or maybe, maybe she heard him teach about a God who loved everybody. Maybe she was there when he said, for God so loved the world. Maybe she heard the invitation firsthand. Maybe she heard him say, if you're tired, if others are weighing you down with their rules and regulations, come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Whatever motivated her, it was paying off now. And Simon's friends didn't like the outcome or what Jesus said to her, but Jesus just continued to pour it on. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Can you imagine the release, the joy, the emotion that she experienced then what she came for she got and i really i'm not sure she came i'm not sure she knew she would get that all she knew was this guy is different he doesn't want me for my body he doesn't want me for what i can do for him he just loves me because god loves me and so he forgave her is this the experience you're praying for, for your one? This is what you want them to experience, isn't it? Something genuine, something real, not some fake, phony religion or hypocritical behavior. This is what you want for them. Now, I want to give you a couple application points real quickly. As you consider and as you continue to build the relationship between you and your one, that will provide an opportunity for you to get in there with, with some good words. First of all, I want you to know that condemning the woman did not work. Condemning the woman did not lead her out of her sinful behavior. If condemnation would have worked, the Pharisees would have gotten it done. Because they were condemning her at every turn. In fact, if condemnation worked, this church would be full, wouldn't it? Because we're good at that. We're good at condemnation. I mean, maybe you struggle with this like I do. It's, uh, you know, I, I, see, I see the dust. I see the cobweb. I see what's wrong before I see what's right. I don't know if that's you, but it's, it's a struggle. We have to remember that this is not why we're here. We're not here to belittle others. We're not here to condemn others. We're not here to make them feel small. We're not here to, to uh, 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 beat them up with the Bible. Now, we are here to speak the truth in love. We speak the truth in love. You know, I just quoted John 3.16. You remember that verse, God so loved the world. But do you remember John 3.17? John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. What? If, if he doesn't condemn the world, who's going to? But in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, you end up condemning yourself. You condemn yourself. We don't have to do it. This woman, you think she needed anybody else to beat up on her? She was already carrying a boatload of guilt and shame. I was talking to Dave, Big Dave Lavender. He's from our Marmat campus. He's one of our elders because he was one of their elders, and we brought him over this year, if you'll remember. And he's preaching today. It's their last Sunday morning service, and we, we have a Zoom sermon Zoom discussion where all of us who preach, we talk about it on Thursday. And we were talking about the sermon today, and he said, he said this is going to work perfect for us. He said, because everybody knows, you know, there's 50, about 15 people left up there, and everybody knows we're changing everything next Sunday. And, we're, and we're, we're making an intentional effort for the first time in a long, long time to reach the people who don't look like us, who don't think like us, who don't smell like us, who don't live like us. He said, we're making an intentional effort to reach this woman and people like her, people who are addicted, people who, who have more kids and they have money. He said, that, this, is, this is what I'm going to preach today because I want us to be ready. Because sometimes when you've been in the church a long time, you're not ready. You're not ready for the, to cross the line. You're not ready to, for the person to come in who, who doesn't smell very good, who, who's, been, you know, who's hung over Sunday morning, hung over. We've got to be ready. And uh, we're not in the condemnation business. That's not our job. And let me tell you something, folks. The test of our time is how we will treat the people we disagree with. How will we treat the people who are living in a way that we believe is exactly contrary to the Word of God? It is the test of our time. We don't have to compromise our beliefs. We, we don't have to give in on the truth. But we do speak the truth in love. But how do we love the person that we love who's living in a way we feel like is outside the will of God? It's a test of our time. Many of us are failing. We've got to do better. Remember, condemnation won't work. What will work? An invitation led the woman out of her sinful lifestyle. It was an invitation. Remember, she's condemning herself. She already carried the guilt and the shame. It was an invitation by Jesus and to Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells another story. He tells a story about a man who is throwing a big party, and he, he tells his servant, he says, go invite all the neighbors and friends. And the servant goes out, and he gets to, to one, and the, and the guy says, you know, I, I can't come. Uh, I just got married. And the other guy said, oh, I just bought a yoke of oxen. I can't come. And another said, I just bought a piece of land. I got to go look at it. And it was excuse after excuse after excuse. And so the servant came back and he said, okay, then go, go out and invite some other people. And I think I got a scripture up there. Uh, go out and invite the other people uh, go to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. 
The servant came back and, and said, Sir, <coughs> what you have commanded has been done. Still, there's room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways then and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Compel them. I don't think you should twist anybody's arm. I don't think you should make them do what they don't want to do. <coughs> but I think we should do everything else short of that to get people into the house of God to get people to a conversation over a kitchen table about Jesus, to get people to consider their life and what it looks like without him. And how we can do that is just continually invite, hey, won't you come? Come over to the house and let's talk about it. Come to church with me. Come to my small group. Come over to the house and let's just uh, hang out with some friends. Just come. Come. <clears throat> don't stop doing that because a lot of people are in church today not because of the great music or the preaching or the children's ministry they're in church today because somebody invited them to come somebody invited them to come the bride and the groom say come so I'm going to invite you this morning stand up with me maybe you need to make a decision for Christ you may you may need to uh, give your life to him for the first time. You may need to rededicate your life. Maybe it's baptism or membership or maybe your next step is a group or some kind of a service team. Whatever it is, the invitation is there. And as, you, as you're going, make sure you bring others with you. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, thank you so much for the invitation of the bride, for those who are thirsty for those who are hungry, for those who are hurt and weary and heavy laden. And you say, come, everybody. Bring them all. Let me give them rest. It's what we need, God. It's what we really need. It's what our ones need. It's what our families need. It's what our world needs. Help us to do our part to invite them to you. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.